From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugas, and this is The Explainer. Part of that soup also is gender, right? That is to say, if the when the court splits 6-3, as it undoubtedly will, there will be no man on that side. What's the what's the gender politics of that? And, and so I, when you right when you think about the soup, right? This is a this is a soup that in some sense presents different different component parts. Welcome to season 8 of the Miami Law Explainer. The legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Justice Stephen Breyer retires from the Supreme Court, opening a spot for President Biden to make an appointment. Constitution expert Charlton Copeland handicaps the future of the court. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Charlton. Good morning. Well, so let's get smarter. Uh, first, can we talk about the court? So a Gallup poll in the fall showed that Americans' opinion of the Supreme Court is at its lowest in 20 years, when just a year before, it was almost 20 points higher. So why the precipitous drop in integrity? I think that um, this has been a long time coming. I think that I think that your what what you point to is is significant, right? The the, the fact that right because if Someone like me might have imagined that the the court's reputation might have taken a hit at the end of the Obama administration after Justice Scalia died um, when the nomination um, had been held up and and no vote had been taken. Right. But I, I do think that that people may have thought, well, you know, a president, his term is ending. Um, a, 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 an elected president should probably get that get that slot. Um, uh, and, and we'll wait to see what the election outcome is for that. And and so there is a sense in which, however you felt about the treatment of Obama's nomination to fill Justice Scalia's seat, the Trump's appointment of uh, Justice Gorsuch had a Democratic stamp, right? He was a democratically elected president, and that was... Right. And so what happens, right, essentially is the the death of Justice Ginsburg and what I think is clearly perceived to be, uh, and I think rightly, clearly perceived to be the hypocrisy of the Republican majority in the Senate. Right. Mitch McConnell, who um, who played the, the henchman in uh, Obama's term, but who would play the godfather, as it were, for, for, for President Trump and, and, and deliver Amy Coney Barrett uh, in really short order to the Supreme Court. I think that, um, that was an important and I think decisive uh, step uh, towards um, undermining the integrity of the court as a, as a kind of independent institution that would um, that would push back, that that could push back, and I and 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 so I think that um, you know other people might have answered, 
you know, what happened at the again at the end of the Obama administration, I think that I would have thought that that would be. But I think that it's 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 the hypocrisy. If you once you put the events of late 2020 next to the events of, you know, uh, 20, 2015 going into 2016, the events of look worse, right? Uh, and 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 there's no there's not a, a very good explanation, and 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 I think that that comes back to to what happened in those two nominations. Mm-hmm. Mitchell McConnell Corleone, uh, <laughs> Michael, my friend. Um, so with with uh, with Justice Breyer stepping down, uh, retiring. So what will we most be missing in the court with with his retirement? Catherine, this is a great question. And I, so I want to I want to separate it. I want to talk about what we are going to miss as a kind of public and what the court will miss. I'm going to take the, the public dimension of that first. There is no one like Justice Breyer on the current court. The closest, and, and by that I mean Justice Breyer engages the American public in writing. He, he writes trade publications. He is heavy on the lecture circuit. I suspect that mo- more judges are, 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 are closer to him on the lecture circuit. Few um, are as close to him in the kind of public intellectual engagement around the, the court as an institution, law as an institution, uh, the court in a democracy as a set of um, um, reaffirming institutions, uh, it's it's just not there. And it's certainly not there on what we think of as the quote unquote liberal wing of the court, right? So when we think about Scalia as the kind of public face of American judicial conservatism, um, and I don't want to suggest that Breyer was Scalia. He wasn't a rock star <laughs> to to the left in the way that Scalia was. And he certainly he couldn't even rival Justice Ginsburg in the kind of rock star quality. But I think he was the most important liberal on the court from a public perspective in writing uh, in that kind of engagement. So I think that it what is lost is huge. And who's going to talk about marshmallow guns? Like there's that whole part of it. And, 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 and Gorsuch is, is, is sort of finding his way to that. But again, Gorsuch is in some sense attempting to fill the shoes of Scalia. There, you know, um, Justice Sotomayor, to her credit, is a very public justice. But Justice Sotomayor is not engaged in the kind of public seminar of sorts about the court that Justice Bre- Justice Breyer, unlike, right, some of the other, he, he has no memoir, right? His biography is not the stuff of um, legal uh, fandom, as it were. And so he has, he has really pressed his way into the kind of public imagination as your great seminar teacher. What is the court going to miss, right? The internal dynamics. The court is going to miss, I think, the person who, in some sense, and I don't say this 
because I think I think Kagan is this as well, the the deal maker of sorts, the person who was going to try to find the to direct a conservative to the middle, right? And you you think about a host of uh, judgments in which you could imagine that Kagan and Breyer acting in tandem played crucial roles. Um, and I, I and I say that to say, right, on the question of the Affordable Care Act and ultimately its status as a tax, which was the basis upon which the individual mandate would be uh, held constitutional, um, the way in which Breyer and Kagan found their way to a kind of agreement with um, with justice, uh, with the chief justice on Medicaid, a kind of problematic piece, but um, then ultimately says this can be severed from the statute. And so the overall statute doesn't crumble. You see Justice Breyer's handiwork there. You see it. Um, and so I think the court is going to um, to miss, and certainly I think Kagan will miss, a partner who could help her make certain kinds of overtures to draw, um, at the very least, Justice Roberts to more moderate positions. Now, you're, you, you, the question is, does that matter? Will that matter in the in the current configuration? Because the cases about which I've just spoken were decided on a very different court. Um, and so wooing Chief Justice Roberts might not mean much on the current configuration. And so um, one one the 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 thing that I've articulated as what the court will miss may itself have been diminished in, in, in given what the court looks like now. Well, that leads me to ask you about kind of the role, the official role that Breyer played. So who who what was that role, and who will now assume that role? So the official. So this is the, poor Breyer is Breyer might be the unluckiest justice in the history of the Supreme Court. Why do I say that? So Justice Breyer gets appointed in 1994. Another vacancy does not come open until Chief Justice Rehnquist dies in 2005. So he is the longest serving junior most justice, I think in the history of the Supreme Court. So that's one thing. But then, right, he is appointed a year after Justice Ginsburg. So he never, he only gets to serve for about a year or so, two years, I guess, as the senior most liberal, right? And so for the last couple of years since the death of Justice Ginsburg, what he has been in effect is the de facto chief justice of the liberal wing. That is to say, right, in decisions where the court splits in that way, five, four, six, three, it is it has been Justice Breyer who gets to assign who writes the dissenting opinion, right? And so um 
Uh, and if there are other configurations, right? So if there are, you know, configurations in which Justice Breyer is is on the opposite side of the chief justice, but there are other justices, right? Um, then he gets to be the senior most justice. He hasn't gotten to be that guy um, very long. And so there's a sense in which, um, you know, the most prominent official role of, of, of Justice Breyer is the one in which he served, right, longest as the junior most justice. Um, uh, uh, but, but again, I think he has exercised, particularly in certain cases, an outsized um, authority. I think in, again, in his, in his abilities to, to, to woo uh, and to, to move in ways that look like, right? If we, if, we even, if we go back to Bush v. Gore, right? There, are, there continue to be, right? The stories of how close Justice Kennedy comes to being persuaded by the then suitor Briar duo, um, uh, and 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 we know how that went, and 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 how how the story uh, un- unfolded. Um, and so I think that his unlucky status in these formal roles um, aside, he has he has nevertheless played a crucial role in crafting, uh, in, in sometimes getting to five. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. Um, so whomever President Biden nominates will will not change the conservative majority on the court. But just just his promise to to nominate a, a black woman has caused all these ripples. So depending on who gets the nod, what's that going to look like? So this is I think this is, this is again, this is a great question. <laughs> um, this is. um you're absolutely right, right? Which is, in, in some sense, to say, did this court need what Breyer had? <laughs> um, because if if the argument is that Breyer's value to the court is that Breyer could get you the <clears throat> the moderate conservative that is Kennedy or the institutionalist conservative that is uh, Roberts, if that's no longer significant if getting Roberts is not the thing, then does the court need something different? And the question is, so what is now on some level, right? We we are not getting from Breyer a kind of ideological sense of what that what the black woman he wants to appoint has to has to, to bring to the table. Um I, I believe that the two leading contenders, right? Um uh, uh, Kataji Brown Jackson on the U.S. Court of Appeals to the D.C. Circuit, and if we are to believe um, some of the reports, um, Leandra Kruger of the California Supreme Court, who I, who is my classmate, who I started law school with, um, and 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 took con law with uh, um, trajectories, <laughs> um, but Kruger has been criticized on the left for being uh, somewhat harder on crime in the cases in the California Supreme Court. She has been seen as a kind of moderate liberal um, on that court, a bridge builder. That might be a thing that is important or not, right? Meaning that, that, that impulse might not be so attractive. Um, Kataji Brown Jackson has not been on a collegial court very long, right? She was a district court judge. And when you're a district court judge, you're the king or the queen. 
Um, and so she hasn't sat on a, a collegial court that long. So it's not altogether clear what her majority building impulses, capacities are. But she was on the sentencing commission. She right. She she clerked for Breyer. She seems to have um, a kind of structuralist sensibility like Breyer. You could envision um, her also making some overtures to more conservative elements of the court. You know, you know, to the extent that Kavanaugh will now sort of occupy the pivotal position in the court. Um, there connection to D.C., to the D.C. circuit might matter. Um, but again, I think the, I think your question is absolutely right to say the court ought to look like, right, um, some significant part of, of, of his base that is either a part of his base or a part of the base to that or a part of the electorate that he aspires to draw into his uh, his electoral um, uh, coalition, right? Reagan did it. Reagan did it with with, with the nomination of, of, of Justice O'Connor. Um, and 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 Reagan did it again in 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 an attempt to kind of solidify uh, his position with Italian Americans, uh, and these were both important and and I think good appointments, right? Nobody would suggest that either of these justices served with anything less than distinction, um, and so you know all of the the, the hoopla about lesser intelligences of sorts. Um, is is of is really of no moment because you know I, I, again these women both clerked on the court they they are, they've existed in a certain milieu from a professional capacity are there always more people qualified to be on the Supreme Court than the one seat we've got open I hope so <laughs> right right I hope so well so it, it kind of from what you're saying it's kind of like. Okay, they have this soup, and now all of a sudden they've t- taken out one of the main components, and they're trying to figure out like how to add that without mucking the soup up too much. Can I interrupt you for one thing? Because part, part of what, and, and this is something I've been thinking about, and I was thinking about not saying it, but I, I'm going to say it. Part of that soup also is gender, right? That is to say, if the, when the court splits 6-3, as it undoubtedly will, there will be no man on that side. What's the what's the gender politics of that? And, and so I, when you right when you think about the soup, right? This is a this is a soup that in some sense presents different different component parts. Um, right? You know, we we've for the, for the last 40 years we had uh we had a conservative woman right when 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 justice o'connor uh retired and was replaced by uh, uh, alito right uh and then when obama appointed two women to the supreme court um the split was was sort of you know the the, the women justices and Breyer. right <laughs> that that will look different and the question is what will that what will that visual mean? That brings me to my next question, which is we've had historically we've had courts that are very divided in the past, even though if you look at the for the majority of the time, you had nonpartisan voting like you had. What was it like? Ninety seven 
anyway, high numbers of of Democrats and Republicans voting for, which we haven't seen in the last wee bit. Um, so historically, when you have a court that's divided that heavily, six to three, how does that suss out? I want to lift up what I think is one of the really important parts of that question, right? It's not just that the court might be ideologically divided, but that the ideologically ideological divide is present in the confirmation, right? That the confirmation process signals the ideological divide, right? There was no question that Scalia was appointed to the court to, 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 to try to move the New Deal revolution off the, the, the sort of uh, the pages. Um, oh my God, you just completely blew my mind. Like, like placing a justice just because of certain issues. I, I, well, I think that that's I mean, look, there is no, the Reagan revolution is a kind of counteraction to the New Deal great society moment. Right. And Leah is he's smart enough. He is connected enough. He is. And, and, and look, you know, uh, power to you. But Scalia, Scalia gets confirmed as though Scalia was was a milk toast, right? Moderate Republican. And 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 that happens and it happens repeatedly. It isn't until Clarence Thomas and Clarence Thomas quite likely would have had a different confirmation process had it not been for Anita Hill. Right. Lots more Democrats would have felt um, comfortable voting for Clarence Thomas's confirmation uh, and perhaps scared not to. Right. Not wanting to offend black voters by not voting for Clarence Thomas. And so um, I, I think that you're absolutely right to say this is a really different moment because we're not just talking about justices who are appointed by R's and D's, but in some sense, you're talking about justices who are much more fixed, particularly Republican appointed justices in their ardom, right? Because look, if you take seriously the fact that for years, the court has been dominated by Republican appointed justices. You, I mean, Jimmy Carter got no appointments. Gerald Ford got an appointment and Richard Nixon had, had lots. And so when you think about the, that, that history, what the, the center was being held by Republican appointees who moved, right? Black men and John Paul Stevens. And I shouldn't say they moved. Maybe, you know, they were where they were and, and the pieces around them may have moved, right? But whatever the case may be, you don't have a court in which you are going to see I don't think much more, much ideological movement across the term of, um, of a justice on the court. And so this, 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 I mean, your question raises so many important points because there's a kind of fixity to the polarization that I, that I don't think we, we've had, um, in, in prior courts. Well, we haven't even talked about Thomas's wife, but that's for another day. I wish you could be more passionate about this, though. But this, so this is, I mean, but this, again, these are the kinds of things that I think go into that Gallipo, to go back to, 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 to your first question. Yeah. Um, so let's look into the future and your little so, uh, crystal ball. So does the court need to expand, like, is is there something that needs to be changed to more balance the court? And going back to Clarence Thomas's wife, like, does he need to be removed from the court? 
Or does his wife need to be, you know? This is, um, you know, Abe Fortas, uh, whose removal from, whose, whose decision to resign from the court was one of the huge turning points in the history of the court. Abe Fortas had been appointed by Lyndon Johnson. And when, when Chief Justice um, Earl Warren uh, retired, uh, Abe Fortas was nominated to become the Chief Justice. But, Earl, uh, but, but Abe Fortas, who had a very, uh, his wife might have been a better lawyer than he, um, they, they seemed to play footsies with, with people who were funding certain parts of their lifestyle. Abe Fortas did not want to join the court because Abe Fortas had a certain lifestyle that he did not believe that the, a justice's salary would uh, maintain. Um, and when that comes to light, Abe Fortas leaves the court, right? And then Nixon wins and then, right, it's it's all different. Um, that's... We we I think we live in a moment where there is no shame, right? Where 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 you where you will go to the limits to protect your guy, um, however nefarious the story looks. You will you will we we have entered into a moment, and this is larger than the court. I think right. This is about our democracy, where every story that criticizes your guy is some partisan attempt to undermine them. Um, But, but, but we need to, we need to remember our history and we need to remember moments in which um, I think we were less partisan. And I I think that, and and again, the Democrats could have been really partisan because again, that split, that, that moment, that Abe Fortas moment has fundamental consequences for what happens in the 1970s, fundamental consequences for the trajectory of American constitutional law and its development over the last uh, 50 years. Um, uh, you know, but yeah, Clarence, Tom- Clarence Thomas is, is a lifer. I mean, right. He's been on the court. I mean, you think Clarence Thomas has been on the court longer than Thurgood Marshall? He's been on the court longer than Breyer, longer than Gins. He is an institution. Um, whereas, you know, Fortis had been on the court for only a few years and, 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 you know, kind of didn't really want to be there. Um, and, and so, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what that looks like. So to answer the easier question, I clerked on a court, I clerked on the constitutional court of South Africa, um, that had term limits. Um, I don't know about enlarging the size of the court, but I do know, um, that, the, the 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 subject of term limits ought to be more seriously uh, explored. Uh, I would vote. I would I would recommend enlarging the court so that you could work through term limits and then sort of downsize the court back to nine once they sort of begin to kind of work. Right. Because you, you wouldn't want to. Um, I, I would want them to kind of work in ways that wouldn't jeopardize certain sorts of, you know, uh, values and interests. And, and, and so if you just put a clock on every justice now, right, it's like, oh, well, the the the, the Biden justices or the next president's justices. Right. Oh, um, look at the time. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and then and then you've got Clarence Thomas there who's 107. Right. And so it would have to be done in some way that might mean expanding the court for a temporary moment. But I certainly think that we ought to explore term limits. I think that this notion of and look at what we've seen. I mean, Again, from the left, right? 
give us our seat, give us that seat, uh, Briar, give us that seat, go home. That is, um, you wouldn't have that in term limits, right? You, you know, if you, if you had a set of, 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 of expectations about when vacancies would arise, you know, you've got some presidencies that are worth a whole lot, some presidencies that aren't because they don't get any retirements. That I think that there, there's some really interesting structural challenges. Um, you know, a one-term president gets three people on the court while, you know, a, 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 a two, 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 three two-term presidents in a row only appoint two. Yeah, I think that there's a there's something to be explored there for me. Well, let's leave it there. I am smarter. <laughs> we slept at a Holiday Inn last night. <laughs> well, thanks, Charlton. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Catherine, for having me. It is always a pleasure to, 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 to engage you. And really, thanks for the questions. Um, this was fun. <laughs> You're so kind. Be well, my friend. Likewise. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by the upcoming University of Miami Race and Social Justice Law Reviews 2022 Symposium, Reimagining the Movement to End Gender Violence. This symposium will seek to reimagine responses to gender violence, including how the state intervenes and alternatives to state intervention, legally and community-based. February 18, 2022. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.